Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Starting over is hard, but what if you were starting over in a new country where you didn't even speak the language? This is precisely where Emil Israeloff found himself as a seven-year-old when his parents made the courageous decision to emigrate to the U.S. Growing up, Emil found himself helping to support his father's restaurant business and learning firsthand what true grit and determination were, traits that would serve him well when he began his own career. Today, Emil works in helping people with one of their biggest financial decisions, buying or refinancing a home as a mortgage broker. By having a front row seat to someone else's financial life, Emil helps people discover ways to utilize equity in their homes that support their financial and lifestyle plans. While Emil tells stories of how he has helped public service professionals, such as police officers, firefighters, and first responders, he also discusses his specialization in working with young medical professionals graduating from med school or those finishing their residencies. Specifically, Emil's firm has developed a medical program tailored to help doctors, dentists, and similar medical professionals buy a home without student loan getting in the de- in the way. Please enjoy my conversation with Emil Israeloff. Emil, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. I know it's been a while since we've, we've been trying to put this thing together for a while, so I'm glad to finally have you on. Yeah, thank you, Paul. I appreciate you having me on here. So I think the the best place to start is to have you talk to our audience about your background and specifically the topic that we're going to talk about today is mortgages, refinancing, um, along those lines. So let me turn it over to you and have you have you give our audience a, a bit of background on on who you are. Sure. So Emil Zraelov, I'm with Lake Michigan Credit Union. I've been in the business for 25 years. I've spent the last eight years of my career with Lake Michigan Credit Union. Uh, Started out in the mortgage industry um, in 1996. Uh, A good friend of mine was very successful in this business. And at that time, I was in an industry that was disrupted by, believe it or not, the internet. So um, took my sales skills and my uh, customer service background from working in the restaurant industry with my parents and decided to give mortgages a try. And um, after, you know, just creating solutions for people that were, you know, situations when they needed, you know, whether it was debt consolidation or helping them finance their first home, um, you know, it really was a fulfilling, it was was a fulfilling career, you know, it was a very rewarding career to help others. So um, I kept, you know, kept at it. And at first it started out as a job and just, you know, evolved into a career. Um, I love working with financial planners like yourself. Uh, you know, unfortunately, work with some divorce attorneys as well when people have to separate. 
But, um, you know, just a number of verticals in my business where, you know, people, it's not just refinancing your mortgage or buying a house. They're, you know, um, the mortgage is uh, the, you know, the largest debt of your life, but it can also be used to uh, really restructure the person's financial situation. Yeah, that's the that's the one interesting thing about your line of work, very similar to mine, is that you have a front row seat to the intimate workings of families' financial uh, plans and aspirations and 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 actual data. So um, let let's go even a, a step back, and and I think you have a really interesting story that I'd like you to tell our audience about about your family and how you came here. Sure. So. Um... I'm, I was born in Azerbaijan, which is uh, the former Soviet Union. Azerbaijan is an independent country these days, but it was under Russian occupation at the time. And when I was seven and my sister was nine, my parents um, decided to make the courageous move to America. Um, and I say courageous because, you know, at 34 and, you know, at 34 years old and 31, you know, to take your family and you know, hop across the Atlantic Ocean without knowing the language, you know, is pretty brave. And um, so we came here. My dad was a chef. My mom was a stay-at-home mom at the time in Russia. And, you know, my dad quickly found employment uh, as a chef here and within three years opened his own restaurant. So with uh, a family, you know, family restaurants, probably one of the toughest businesses because you're there, you're there to, you know, it's 7 a.m. for the breakfast crowd and you're there for the dinner crowd till 9 p.m. And then you got to lock up and then come back and do it all over again. So um, my sister and I, um, you know, I remember after middle school sports, you know, one of my teammates' parents would just drop me off at the restaurant so we can help my parents close up you know, go home and do it all over again the next day. And, you know, I, I really attribute that my work ethic and customer service skills to that upbringing, you know, in a service oriented industry like the restaurant industry. So, um, and, you know, educated here, my sister and I both, and then, you know, uh, just like our parents made the sacrifice, we, you know, we've made the some sacrifices for our kids and now, you know, 25 years in the business, you know, very fortunate, very fortunate. So how I, feel, I, I, I've lived the American dream. And, and that's, that's exactly what I want. I wanted my audience to know about you. So is your, is your, just out of curiosity, is your dad still in the, in the restaurant business? Is he still going? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, actually my dad's, uh, since my parents have both retired since then, uh, my dad, you know, we retired my dad, uh, you know, probably in 1998, we retired him for the first time, but, you know, he just, it was in his blood. So, you know, one of his nephews had a restaurant that needed some help. So he jumped back in the game, you know, then he got, you know, then he decided to open another one. And then, you know, so he's retired several times from the industry and re-entered. I think it just, you know, just somebody that's used to working 16 hours a day, you know, can't sit still. And um, yeah, so, but now he's retired. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, retired and enjoying his grandchildren. I think that's a, that's a transition that is very underestimated when it comes to the thought of retiring, especially like somebody like, you know, ourselves or, or your dad, obviously is, you know, this driven person and the thought of just flipping a switch and going from full-time working to full-time, you know, retirement or, or, you know, not doing that a, a whole lot 
is a transition that I don't think most people give enough consideration to. And, you know, I have, I started having conversations with people in their late forties and early fifties about, you know, what do you want to do? Because, you know, these days, say you retire at 60, 65, you could have another 35 plus years before, you know, you potentially go to make, meet the maker. And I mean, that's a, that's a whole nother, you know, life in, in transitions, which is kind of the, the highlight of, of this whole how this whole podcast has turned out to be is about life transition. So I definitely wanted to, to have people know your story and, and have you share it because I can't imagine what that was like, that decision process that went into your parents' uh, uh, thinking on, on, okay, we're going we're gonna to leave and go to the States and sight unseen. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Luckily, my mom had a brother. Uh, my mom had one sibling here, her brother, Isaac, and you know he welcomed us, but um, you know, it's, you know, it's very, um, you know, in 1980, it was a little bit easier to get here. You know, people coming over now, it's a little bit tougher, you know, obviously the cost of living has increased quite a bit and, you know, but coming over back then was, you know, as, yeah, as difficult it would be to leave somewhere, you know, they did it for us, the children, because, you know, they knew that our, um, our horizons, here, you know, our opportunities here were much greater than, you know, back home. So let's, let's pivot into mortgages. And the question that I get all the time, and I'm sure you get just as much is people are always asking, how do I know when it's a good time to refinance? And, you know, we've, we've been at these historically low, you know, mortgage rates for, for years now. And, you know, some people still think they maybe have missed the boat, but even before then, you know, when rates were a little bit higher, you know, I think this question will always be asked, like, how do I know when a good time to refinance is? So, you know, there's, and believe it or not, you know, rates have ticked up. They're close to 4% now uh, on the 30-year fixed. And believe it or not, when rates were at 3%, you know, several months ago, three, three and a quarter, people were waiting for them to get down to two and a half, you know? So for some people, it's never the right time, right? They, they, it's always going to get better. No, but uh, any time that, you know, there's, there's two, there's, you know, different ways to look at it. So some people, you know, it's a good time to refinance when uh, you're, when the rates are low, if you're just refinancing your mortgage and you have nothing else financially going on that needs, um, you know, assistance or consolidation, you know, anytime you're saving, uh you know, over a percent and it's, it's unfair to almost say, you know, how much, but you got to look at it from a total cost of ownership, in my opinion, because there's, you know, there's cash flow driven people, people that just like the low payment. And then there's equity builders, right? The people that want to get their house paid off because that's a sense of security for them. So between those two, you know, there's really, you know, and within, within each one of those two mindsets, there's several, different scenarios when a good time to refinance is, you know, if you've been in a 4% mortgage for 10 years, you know, a 30 year fix for 10 years, and you come to me and say, Hey, Emil, I'm at 4%. And you know, what are my benefits? You know, what are the pros and cons of refinancing right now? And, and rates were a three and a quarter, let's say, well, I'd look at it and say, well, you're 10 years into a 30 year amortization, you know, your monthly benefit may be X, but you're already paying your, you know, your, your principal versus interest allocations are already ahead of where you would be by refinancing. 
So sometimes it's hard to tell people to stay put, but, you know, because they see an interest rate that's being advertised or they hear their friends refinanced at a lower rate. And, but, you know, to them, you got to show them on paper, listen, you're going to increase your total cost of ownership, you know, and you're going to start paying more interest because mortgage interest is amortized. It's front loaded. You pay more. And as you pay down every month, you know, there's an, an allocation shift of, you know, towards principal and less interest. So you got to explain all that. You know, we have great tools to display all that for people. And, um, you know, so for that kind of person that, you know, if they say, well, I'm only going to be here for the next five years and I just want to lower my payment. Great. Then maybe we can get them a better interest rate by putting them into a seven year arm that'll, you know, get them a cheaper interest rate and a lower payment. But if they, you know, if somebody's goal is to pay off the house, then, you know, we look at all kinds of options. Maybe they started with a $300,000 mortgage and now they're down, you know, 240 and, you know, their income has increased and their, you know, their goal is to pay off the house. So maybe we look at a 15 year option or 20 year option or 10 year option. So there's really, you know, um, those, you know, those are just talking about mortgages. Then you add in, um, you know, opportunities of funding education, you know, or debt consolidation, you know, several people, you know, however they get into the position, have credit card debt, or, you know, maybe, um, you know, I was a young parent. So for me, uh, the only retirement savings I had was for, you know, a job related 401k, because when, you know, we had kids really young, and so for me, you know, I wasn't able to put away the 529 college plan. I wasn't, you know, so when my kids hit college, I was funding that out of pocket. Um, but, you know, some people that may have not had the opportunity, but maybe have built some equity based on, you know, paying down their mortgage or, you know, the appreciation of real estate over the last 10 years, you know, now they have a little bit of equity. I mean, that could be used to, you know, fuel a financial plan. You know, they can take, they can take, you know, 50,000 out of equity of their home, right? And put it to work. And let's say they have kids that are three, you know, between the age of three and six. Now, what can 50,000 do in a 529 over the next 13 to 15 years when their kids hit college, right? So there's very, you know, uh, your, your house keeps appreciating, hopefully, and you're paying down amortized debt. Um, you know, on the mortgage. So there's, you know, there's a lot of things that your equity can do for you. You know, I've, we've discussed, you know, uh, some of your clients that are wanting to take equity out of their primary residence to go buy an investment property. Yeah, that's a definitely, that's definitely a topic I want to cover. So, cause that's a question I've been getting more and more often as, as well. Yeah. So, so go so, ahead. You know, a good a good time to refinance just depends on the people's needs and goals. Um, yes, when it's a function of just lowering your payment or just saving some money on interest, you know that's all. It's usually a no brainer. We look at a total cost analysis to see if it's a true benefit, and you know that's something we can whip up pretty quick. But you know the debt consolidation, the you know the investment, all those other opportunities. You know, those are, you know, on a case by case basis. And we love re reviewing that, you know, that's, it's different than just the, hey, here's your rate, here's your payment. Hey, you know, here's how much equity we can get out of your house, put it in, you know, whether it's a financial plan or, um, you know, consolidating some debt, funding a college or retirement savings account, um, you know, 
or an investment property. Those are, you know, those are always great options. And again, you know, we have tools to analyze all of that for you. One of the things I did want to come back to regarding rates and, you know, when you talk about <laughs> refinance, it's people get really emotional as you probably are well aware being in the industry for so long about the interest rates themselves. And I've told people there, there's really not much difference in your, in your principal and interest payment between a, you know, an interest rate of three and 3.25, if you will. And, but I think it's just a, a, I don't know, sense of pride that people like feel like they've really won or gamed the system by having that lower rate. But one of the things that I experienced is that, you know, you have, unfortunately in your industry, just like mine, you know, there's some, there's some bad characters and there's a lot of, of, of companies pushing what these I'll call teaser rates. And I'll get a call like, well, I just saw this rate advertised at like two and a half percent. As, and as you just mentioned, you know, the going rate for a 30 year right now is around four. And like, yeah, that math does not add up. And people don't understand necessarily what's involved in that. Can you like walk us through a sure. situation like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're, you know, we're uh, Lake Michigan Credit Union is the number one purchase money and construction lender in the state of Michigan. So we record, you know, we record a lot of mortgages. So there are companies that actually exist only to scrape our data, you know, go mortgage recordings are public record. So they'll, they'll go buy the mortgage recordings and then they'll send out mass letters, you know, and it'll say, Regarding your $465,000 mortgage with Lake Michigan Credit Union, you are eligible to refinance at 2.5% and possibly get $50,000 in equity out. And I get my clients calling me going, hey, I just got your letter in the mail. Well, that's not a letter for me. That's a letter from somebody else that's trying to solicit business. So, you know, I look at it and I say, hey, listen, take a picture of it or email it to me, text it to me, and I explain to them what it is. But what that is, is people listen. Yes, I can, even if market rates are 4% right now, that's with zero points, you know, and several assumptions, 80% or 20% equity and 740 credit scores. And we have to disclose all that every time we close, you know, disclose a rate. Um, You know, yes, you can buy your rate down to two and a half, but it's going to cost you you know, it's going to cost you four and a half points. Well, on a $400,000 loan that, you know, that's $20,000. So are you willing to pay $20,000 in points on top of your closing costs to buy that rate down? And, you know, paying points sometimes makes sense, but, you know, you've got to do the math because on a refinance, you know, points are only deductible over the amortized term. So if you pay- you know, 30-year mortgage, you can deduct 130th, you know, of your points that you paid on a refinance where on a purchase, they're deductible the year that you closed. So you really got to look at, you know, and that's why the government created the APR tool, right? So the APR, annual percentage rate, takes your interest rate plus any costs associated with getting that mortgage and they divide those costs over the term of the loan. And that's how the government kind of gives you a, a, you know, that shopping tool to take all the different offers, you know, a two and a half percent rate with, you know, three and a half points versus a three and a half percent rate with no points. You know, the APRs that equalize it says, hey, over the, you know, over the term of the loan, 
you're going to pay more or less with each scenario. So there's a way to, you know, there's a way to look at that. But like you said, these are historically low rates. And, you know, the one thing I tell people is, you know, it, we're in a crazy economy right now where people are paying $30,000, $40,000 over asking price and not even thinking about it. But they're shopping they're shopping the life out of me over an eighth of a percent in interest, interest rate. I explained to them, I'm like, listen, slow down and reevaluate things. You know, you can always go back and refinance an interest rate. Interest rate, right? In, the interest rate cycle repeats itself every so many years, right? You're never going to be able to go back and change what you paid for the house, right? And right. hope it appreciates. So um, interest rates, to go back to our, you know, original point, interest rates are low. Um, you know, the difference, you know, the difference between three and three and a quarter is more of an ego thing, you know, because your neighbor said he got 2.875. Yeah, exactly. That's where it gets to. <laughs> he didn't tell you that he paid $6,000, you know, in points. And, you know, not only that, every single scenario is different. You know, mortgage credit, uh, mortgage rates, um, you know, we have credit tiers every 2740 and up on a conventional mortgage gets the same rate right and then every 20 points there's a different pricing adjustment right and whether you do a cash out or you know just refinancing the uh the rate and you know the rate on your loan and not taking cash out that also has different rates um whether it's a yeah, and let me condo. just interrupt for a second because yeah. I think that's a really good point to make because p- people may not realize that when you do a refinance and it's a cash out, you're going to end up paying a higher interest rate than if you you take a refinance without doing a cash out. Correct? Oh, absolutely, and that's you know, and there's you know, and these are public matrices. You can go to Fannie Mae's website and look up you know the acronym is LLPA Loan Level Pricing Adjustments, and there's a grid. If your credit score is between 680 and 699, you know, it's this much adjustment to the rate for just the credit score. And if you're doing cash out, there's an additional penalty, you know. So there's, you know, it's a matrix of uh, price adjusters that we have to, we call, they call them risk-based premiums or loan level pricing adjusters. And we, you know, that's what our software does, calculates that. And you don't necessarily have to take the higher rate. You know, if it's a quarter point for your credit score and another half a point for your um, cash out, you can pay that three quarters of a point and get the same rate as you would if it wasn't a cash out, right? So there's two ways. You don't necessarily have to take the higher rate. You can pay the points to take the rate, to get the lower rate. And, you know, that makes sense at times. You know, if you're refinancing and consolidating 60000 or even, let's not even make it that dramatic, $30,000 with a credit card debt, right? Average credit card interest rate, what? 18% in the States? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at you're, least. Taking, you're taking $30,000 at 18% and consolidating it into your mortgage down to, let's call it three, you know, even today's rate, 4%. You know, you're saving a lot of money. Yes, you're amortizing it over a longer period of time, but you just drop that interest rate by 75, more than 75%. And if you make the same payments that you were making on your credit cards, towards your mortgage, that debt will be gone in half the time that, w- that it would have been on a credit card. Yeah. So, you know. And I think the, it, in, when it comes to like the behind the scenes of, of financial planning that, that I'm working on, I have, this, I have this conversation with people often. The challenge is 
is you can make the numbers look spectacular on paper. But the challenge that, that, that I have in my role as, as their advisor is getting people with, say, high credit card debt is to change their behaviors because it, it makes no sense to consolidate all, your, all this debt and then to turn around and build it back up because now you're just back in the, in the hole again. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, and that's it, a big challenge. <laughs> yeah. The behavior, you know, there's got to be behavioral shift if somebody's, you know, dependent on, you know, but there's some people that just run into a circumstance and they ran up some debt and, you know, listen, credit card, credit cards are very, uh, they're, they're easy to run up, but they're super hard to pay off. Yep, right? Exactly. And, you know, in some situations I may tell a client say, Hey, listen, you know, it's only this much you know, your income is here. Let's not roll it into the mortgage. Maybe we do a balance transfer and, you know, you just have to make a conscious effort over the next 12 months to pay that credit card off instead of, you know, paying the minimum payment. You know, there's other solutions, but yeah, I agree with you with the credit cards. You know, there's some people that, you know, I've had clients come back and, you know, a year later, they're in the same position. I just bailed them out of a year ago. And, you know, you're right. It's totally a behavioral uh, shift in that you know situation. So I think it, it, to kind of summarize this as we're talking about the individuals, I mean, obviously every situation is different, but one of the things that, as you pointed out, that you really want to look at are these two crossroads. One is what are you trying to do? What are your goals and objectives? And two, how does that compare to what the total cost of refinancing potentially could be? You have to take right. all those into consideration. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and when I talk about the total cost of ownership, you know, my job is to, you know, utilize your equity and your credit, right. To have you meet your payment and equity objectives. Right. I want you, if you, if you need, if your comfort zone is $2,200 a month for a housing payment, including your taxes and insurance and everything else, I've got to figure out a way to stay within that. If you have other debt that you know that we're trying to incorporate into this, well, there's got to be some changes, you know, like you said, behavioral changes because this debt's not going to go away. And if we can't increase your, you know, if we've only got a hundred dollars a room in your monthly, you know, payment for your mortgage, we've got to figure out of how to get that in there, right? Without taking and adding eight years to your mortgage, because you've already been, you know you're going back to a 30 year after being in it for, you know, eight years. So um, with those situations, you know, with those situations, we look at it and, you know, and some people, you know, from financial planning perspective, you, you know, there's certain situations where you say, listen, if you can lock in your cost of housing for 2,200 for the, you know, for the next 30 years, that's not a bad play either. Right. It's a great inflation hedge, especially it's a today. Great inflation hedge. <laughs> but, you know, so what we try to do with that total cost of ownership model is, you know, like I said, there are people that are the cash flow. They're saying, hey, I can lock in my cost of housing today for the rest, you know, for the next 30 years. And for the people that are like, OK, hey, yes, I want to get rid of this debt, but I don't want to increase my total cost of ownership of this house by going back and adding eight years. You know, and that's when we say, OK, hey, let's look at a 25 year mortgage. Let's look at a 20-year mortgage. Can we get that within a comfortable payment range for you where you're not extending your mortgage and you're still, you know, 
you're still on track to pay off your um, house by your retirement. You know, I work with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, first responders, police officers, firefighters. You know, I have a cousin that's a police officer. And when when he first started his job, he said, I want to buy a house. You know, he says, and I want to have it paid off by the time I'm retiring in 25 or 30 years. I said, hey, that's a great plan. You know, so we did that. And next thing you know, all of his buddies started coming to me and they said, hey, I want to do what he's doing. And we started doing that. And these guys, you know, some of them, instead of staying on that 30 year track, they came back a few years later and said, hey, I'm making more money now. I want to cut it to a 15 year. So here's, you know, here's a group of professionals that will retire after 25 years, most of them in their late to, you know, mid to late 40s, their houses will be paid off. They're going to have a pension and they can go start a whole new career. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, how successful can you be if you have no worries about a mortgage payment, providing for your family, you've got a pension coming in the door, and then you can go out and really focus on your new career. You know, so that's, you know, like those, those are some of the, we were talking earlier about like the rewards of this business, right? When you see guys 25 years later, and you know, these are, my cousin started, started in the um, police academy right before I started in the mortgage industry. And he's, you know, now to see these guys that he's still buddies with, and they're still my clients and, you know, and they're getting ready to retire. And they're like, man, I got one more year till my house paid (laughs) off. Thanks, buddy. You know, that's so rewarding. That's so rewarding. So let's, uh, there's two more topics I want to get to. So let me, let me get, go to the next one, which we kind of brought up, but the other big question I'm getting a lot lately is, you know, this desire to look at a second home as a potential retirement home or investment property. And full disclosure, I've, I've told all my clients, most of my clients know this, like I did this, I did the same thing. Teresa and I did this a little over a year ago. We, we found, we've been vacationing up in Traverse City with our family for the last six, seven years. Right. And, you know, we just started, you know, trying to scratch that itch, if you will. And we've been looking for the last three years and we finally found something and, and we made it work. And, and that's a question like, well, how did you make it work? Well, part of it was using equity in our current home to be able to do that. So talk to us about what people need to know if they're actually looking at something like that. So, okay. So you have to, you know, with a second home, you have to qualify for both mortgage payments. So A, you have to, uh, from a, you know, from an equity you know, you can only right now lenders because of the uh, pandemic and inflated values, you know, lenders have really um, curtailed their uh, home equity guidelines only up to about 85. You know, so if you look around, you might find somebody that will lend you up to 90% of your uh, home value. Um, with second homes in investment properties, uh, a second home requires a minimum down payment of 10%, Right. Um, an investment property requires a minimum down payment of 15 to 20. So what a lot of people have been doing is buying second homes. They've been taking, whether it's cash, um, you know, borrowing against their 401, taking an equity line on their current home for the down payment, however they're funding the down payment. And then they come to us and get a mortgage for that second home. And how a lot of people are Funding that is some people, you know, there's some people that say, hey, I don't want anybody else in my house. I'll pay the mortgage. I don't care what it costs, 
but now my family and I have somewhere to go every weekend, right? It's two hours away. It's in Cadillac. It's in Traverse City, wherever it is, or Florida, you know, and some people say, okay, hey, we're going to buy this second home and we're going to use VRBO or Airbnb and rent this thing out to subsidize our mortgage. And some people are doing this and they end up, you know, they end up covering their costs by renting it out for half the year and, you know, or certain weekends, and then they get to use it for free. So we, and, you know, here's the funny thing. So um, a couple of months ago, we got an announcement that effective April 1st, all loans delivered, all second family homes, you know, or second, um, all secondary residences starting um, delivery dates to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, effective uh, April 1 are, they changed the loan level pricing adjustment which means they increase the interest rate or the points for a second home. A secondary residence used to cost you the same as a principal residence. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. This this is news to me. <laughs> right? So they just they just put that they just published it um, in January that effective April 1st uh, deliveries um, they're basically priced just like investment properties cuz you know Fannie and Freddie got wiser. They see what people are doing with their second homes or Airbnb them out. And they're truly, you know, the short-term rental market, that's a real thing now. And it's on Fannie's and Freddie's radar. So now they started uh, pricing those loans as such as investment properties. So, you know, if you're putting 20 or 25% down, you probably won't feel the rate difference uh, because it'll be a quarter percent. But if you're putting, you know, 10% down, you're, you're going to pay three and a half points to get that same interest rate, or you can build it into the rate, you know, just take a higher rate. But so that investment property and, you know, and people do buy them for different reasons. People buy them, say, hey, eventually that'll be my retirement home, you know, or people buy them, say, hey, I want to make some money on it, you know, and then enjoy it for free. You know, we can rent it out for half the year and then we can enjoy it for free for as a family. Um, you know, and there's people that buy investment properties left and right. Um, we have people that they're building a retirement, right? They're they're buying rental properties today. Somebody else is, you know, they're putting it on a 30-year fixed. And the rents are paying the mortgage down and then maybe even making a little bit of property or income. And, you know, from a tax perspective, you know, a real estate property, you can use the depreciation to offset the income, you know, to a point. And, you know, and then if you've got six rental properties, at an average of, you know, let's say a two hundred thousand dollar value in each, that's one point two million dollars worth of assets that you will eventually have paid off when you retire. You know, somebody and somebody else is paying that debt down for you. So mortgages are used, you know, every day in this stuff. You know, I have people that are, you know, investors that fix and flip. I have people that are investors that buy and hold. You know, and then the second home market, which, you know, is turning into like the, hey, this is my recreational property, but I'm going to rent it out when I'm not using it. Yeah. And I, and I think this is this, this whole like real estate as a business, um, whether it's short term flipping, long term rental, this is this is a topic we could go down a big rabbit hole. So oh, maybe yeah, that, that, that'll be a conversation for another day. But the, the last the last topic I wanted to get to is I know that you work a lot with with um public service people, police officers, firefighters, first responders. But I also know that you work with a lot of doctors and not just any doctors, but doctors coming out of residency and talk about a 
a very different financial situation. I mean, these, you know, young people, men and women are coming out of, of med school with not tens of thousands of dollars of debts, but hundreds of thousands of dollars of debts, you know, no assets to speak of, but they're going to start making, you know, W2 income of $200,000 plus a year, which is a very fascinating situation to be in. And so, so, go ahead. So the physician loan, yeah, you know, and the spirit of the product originally was, hey, um, not just coming out of residency, but actually doctors going to the residency, they're graduating from med school, and they're going to spend the next three to five years of their life in one location. That's a long time to pay rent, right? So, you know, the average resident earns between forty-eight and $60,000, maybe a little bit higher in some of the higher cost markets like New York and California. But the average resident salary is somewhere between 50, uh, you know, forty-eight and $60,000 a year. Well, you know, as we know, rent is, you know, rent's up there now. It, you know, you can't rent an apartment for six or 800 bucks anymore. So uh, if you're going to live somewhere for the next three to five years, it makes sense to buy. But the challenge with conven- conventional lending is uh, on a regular conventional loan, unless your student loans are deferred for three years or more, you, you, the lender is required to count them in your debt to income ratio, right? So the doctor loan, what it does is it, it gives these people an opportunity to buy a home so they don't have to rent for the next three to five years. So the original spirit of the program was to allow them to buy a home without having the student loan debt counted in their debt to income ratios, because as a, as a resident, they have to reapply for deferment every year for student loans. So they're able to buy a home without their student loan debt getting in the way. And over the next three to five years, you know, they're actually building equity instead of throwing money at rent, throwing, you know, throwing the money out at rent. Um, Now we've since then extended this product to not just residents, but, you know, like you said, these doctors are graduating from their residency then or fellowship and they sign, just sign a contract for 250000 a year, but they don't have a down payment, you know, but it's okay. So we, we structured a program that has no down payment, no PMI, right? PMI is that private mortgage insurance that you pay on a conventional loan when you don't have a 20% down payment. So no, and I'll get into that uh, in a minute why we do that. But you get no PMI, no down payment, and we have terms from a 7-1 arm or a 5-1 arm to all the way to a 30-year fixed. And we allow this for up to one and a quarter million dollars. So you can, as a, if you have a doc, you know, if you're a doctor with a contract, you can borrow up to 1.25 million with zero down and no PMI, which is huge. Yeah, that's right? unheard of. <laughs> I know it's, you know, and we are, we are at the forefront of that. We probably have the highest loan amounts as far as zero down. And, you know, if somebody's buying up to 1.5, we'll allow them to put, you know, 5% down, you know, up to 2 million, 10% down. And, you know, um, our down payments, um, you know, increases the higher you go. But the, you know, what it does with this product and why do we do this, right? Well, the no PMI is because once you start earning you know, from one hundred to one hundred ten thousand dollars, your tax deduction for P- things like PMI sunsets, 
right? Right. Um, so at that point, you know, your only tax deduction is your mortgage interest up to the $750,000 loan amount. So, and also doctors, you know, they have the high income potential. And this is not just doctors. We also extend the courtesy to dentists, you know, MDs, DOs, um, you know, DPMs, uh, CRNAs, which are nurse anesthetists, because they have that ability for that, uh, for their income, income growth increase. Yep. They have the income growth. Um, so there's several professions that are included in that. And, um, you know, and we also extend this. So it used to be only for new doctors or doctors for the first two or three years post-training. Now we've extended it to all doctors, right? It doesn't matter if you've been a doctor for 10 years, 20 years, because doctors relocate a lot. They don't always have time to build equity in their homes, right? So we extend that courtesy to all people in that profession because we know that the, you know, the income solid is going to continue. And, um, you know, and it gives them an ability to pay off their non-tax deductible debt, which is student loans. You know, student loans have that same sunset schedule like PMI does. You know, once you start making over $110,000 a year. You yeah, know, you can't deduct it. You can't deduct student loan interest. <laughs> yeah, so, that's the, and that's the interesting thing. We, we've hit this tax topic, you know, on several occasions throughout our conversation. But that's, that's another reason why when, when I was building you know, my firm, Tama, I built it as this family office where you have planning, portfolio management, and tax prep and planning all under the same umbrella because, you know, taxes touches everything. And, and when you're getting into, you know, working with somebody like you as a mortgage broker, and, and again, it goes back to what are your goals and objectives and how those touch everything in your personal life and your financial life, and obviously how it impacts your taxes. So it's, I love it. It's, it's to me, this is like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a game, like in trying to figure out like out, you know, how to give my clients the best, you know, advantage possible. It is. And it's a, and it's a puzzle and it requires, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it requires, you know, and my favorite, you know, my favorite, uh, part of this job is that you're able to present people with options. Yeah. You don't just have to go to them and say, Hey, this is the only thing you can do. You know, you can go to them with options and say, here are the, you know, pros and cons of this, you know, option A, here are the pros and cons of option B and let them make a decision that's right for them with our guidance. Um, you know, this and the timing on this doctor loan conversation, I mean, couldn't be better. You know, as you're aware, March 15th is match day. So that's when all the uh, young doctors that are graduating from med school are finding out where they're going to do their residency. So in the next, we're going to be really busy in the next four months between March and July, you know, with all of these relocating young physicians. And it's also around the same time where established attending physicians, where they get assigned their contracts, if they're moving jobs, you know, it's usually sometime between July and September as well. So this is going to be a very busy time of year for us um, with those products. And, um, you know, it's very timely. So let me, um, before I get to my closing question, let me ask, what's, I know you're pretty active on LinkedIn. So we'll definitely put a, a link to your, your LinkedIn profile in our show notes. Is that the best place for people to find you, Emil, or if you know, there's another place to go? Uh, so LinkedIn, um, I do have a Facebook uh, business page as well. It's not as active. I, you know, for business, I stick to LinkedIn. Yeah, but I'm also, uh, you can find me online at myloanofficer.com. 
And also, that's also my Twitter handle and all the social media platforms. Okay. We'll definitely make sure that we put that in the show notes. So, um, so this has been, this has been a terrific conversation. So my closing question that I ask all of my guests, and this one is really uh, near to dear to my heart because of your story and the fact that you have four kids, just like me is <laughs> what is the best thing about being a parent? Holy moly. Um, well, um, the best thing about being a parent is, you know, watching your kids grow through some of the things that you remember growing through and being able to give them advice on how you would have done it if you could do it all over again. Right. And, um, you know, sometimes they have to learn on their own, you know, but I guess the most rewarding part is just, you know, for me, at least with the flexibility of my business, um, you know, I've been able to coach sports, which my dad couldn't do because of, you know, the type of business he was in, but, you know, my schedules really allowed me to be active in my kids' childhoods. And, you know, I think the best part about being a parent is finding out that I'm going to be a grandparent in July. <gasps> That's news to me. I didn't hear, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Our oldest daughter is expecting and our only daughter. <laughs> uh, yeah. Our daughter's expecting in July and uh, yeah, that's, that's Very awesome exciting. news. Well, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, Emil, I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. This has been a really you know, enlightening conversation. And I know one that the audience is really going to take to. So thank you very much. We appreciate you being on. Hey, Paul. Well, thank you for having me on here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.